Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Kelsey Bowler, back with you all for another episode. Kelsey, it's just always a treat to have you here. You're the OG Problematic Women, and there's just something like going home whenever you're here. I know, you guys can't get enough of me. <laughs> can't. <laughs> well, today's Problematic Women, we're joined by special guest Carol Markowitz. Carol is a columnist at the New York Post with bylines in Fox News, Time, USA Today, and more. She was born in the Soviet Union and grew up in Brooklyn, and among many of her other titles is Ma. She'll talk to us about why she uprooted her family from New York City to Florida and share her thoughts on the Big Apple continuing to force toddlers to mask. Yeah, Lauren, you know I have some thoughts on that last subject as well. I know you do. (laughs) We'll also chat with Carol about the latest surrounding Leah Thomas, formerly William Thomas. While we've been talking about the transgender swimmer from the University of Pennsylvania on this podcast for months at this point, many Americans just woke up to the reality that men are in fact competing in and now dominating some women's sports. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week here on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those of you whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get into it. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Hi, ladies. Thank you for having me. So let's kick it off by talking about Leah Thomas. We've all seen the news over the past couple days. This University of Pennsylvania swimmer, formerly William Thomas, now identifies as Leah Thomas, became the first transgender athlete to win the NCAA title in the women's 500-yard freestyle. On stage... Thomas towered over the biologically female runners-up. Second place went to Virginia's Emma Wyan, a silver medalist at the Tokyo Olympics, who still finished a whole 1.75 seconds behind Thomas. Because of that, the hashtag second is the first began trending on Twitter. We know from media reports, and I know firsthand at Independent Women's Forum, some of my colleagues having talked to them personally, that many of the female Ivy League swimmers found the situation extremely unfair. And yet, none of them, few of their parents even, have felt safe to talk about it. So, Carol, that's why I want to start this conversation with you today. I want to ask whose responsibility you think it is to speak up, because IWF recently featured a video with a mother whose daughter is a swimmer in the Ivy League forced to compete against Thomas all season. But even that mother requested to stay anonymous. Another mom told media that swimmers are frightened of being kicked off their teams. She said, quote, they're frightened of being told by their universities that they're transphobic and hateful. Um, We did see one female swimmer finally go public with her name after this all happened, Virginia Tech swimmer Rika 
Grierie, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, she publicly released a lengthy statement, which she specifically requested not to be quoted in part. So I'm not going to do that. But I will summarize what she said. On March 17th, uh, this athlete swam the 500 freestyle for the NCAA and uh, placed 17th, which means she didn't get to swim in the finals and was instead the first alternate. Uh, she was a fifth year senior, so this meant it was her last chance to make the NCAA finals. And she said she feels like that spot was taken away from her because of the NCAA's decision to let someone who is not a biological female compete. Uh, she really points to this chain effect, how in every event where a biological male competes, there's one less spot for a biological woman. So, Carol, mm -hmm. getting back to my question, yeah. <laughs> do you think more girls need to shoulder the burden of cancel culture and publicly defend women's sports? Or do you think it's kind of our job in the media and as policymakers who perhaps yeah. have some greater protection, immunity from cancel culture to mm -hmm. give these female athletes a voice? Or these NCAA officials, right? I mean, I feel like they get completely off the hook here because they're so weak and scared of public outcry that they don't do anything. Um, I think we're in a really perilous moment right now, and it's being exposed by this incident um, with Leah Thomas, but it expands way beyond this, obviously. I think there's so many things that we're not allowed to talk about and um, really completely not permitted to say on social media um, or risk, you know, your whole life being upended. And I think this is, I, I always kind of referred to cancel culture as something that happens mostly on the left. It happens, it's a left on left thing because look, if you have a conservative swimmer on that team, that conservative swimmer is going to say, I don't care. This is, you know, ridiculous. And I'm, you know, I, I'm not standing for this, but it's specifically because most of these people are liberal that they that they're so afraid of being on the out group of their own tribe. Um, and it's spreading. It's spreading way beyond the left. And we kind of always knew it would. But for a long time, it really was a leftist firing squad. Um, and now we can see that it's moving beyond that. Uh, so I think this this whole situation is exposing so many things to the American people. I think in general, they've realized that women's sports will die. They, they cannot possibly go on and succeed if you have biological men competing in these sports. So I think American people are, are seeing it firsthand now, whereas it was always kind of theoretical. And the other thing is that I think American people are seeing just how dangerous this, you can't talk about this, you can't talk about that, thing has become and the dismissal by so many people and the New York Times had an article a few days ago about uh, cancel culture and how that it is dangerous and all of these people on the left well like no it's it's not cancel culture it's consequence culture you're not allowed to make racist jokes and get away with it as if that was what the issue was and this is exposing that that is completely not the issue and it has nothing to do with um you know body language or anything like that it has to do with not being able to state something that we all know is true which is that biological men cannot compete in sports with women period yeah kelsey and i think too the answer to that question is that it's all the above right like it can't just be conservative journalists and influencers it can't just be swimmers it has to be 
every American with you know two brain cells rubbed together, but who sees a, a man as a man and a woman as a woman, but also that because uh, the left does this all the time, right? It's a small group of angry people on Twitter who complain to a company, complain to the NCAA, and they completely cave to, to this, this small woke group. And we, as people who understand that a, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, really just need to stand up and and be vocal about it. And that's why, we, I mean, every week we've talked about this story on problematic women. And every week I bring up the same point is it, it, it seems petty that it's okay, it's one swimmer, it's one competition. But it's, it's really important to continue this conversation and continue the drumbeat and not let this even fall the wayside with all the, the news in Ukraine uh, going on and that it's it's a, and the Supreme Court, that it, it's important to talk about and not forget about that we need to stand up that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny because what stops a biological male um, who doesn't call themselves a woman from competing in these competitions against women in that case. Like, is it really just, I consider myself a woman and I, and so I get to be in this competition. Um, I'm a poker player and there's the world series of poker and there's a woman's event. And, you know, for many years there was issues of, well, can a man play in it and how do you stop them? And what, like, at what point is it, you know, is it not okay to exclude them or okay to exclude them? And all these conversations were happening for a long time. And this wasn't even a physical sport. This is, you know, poker that anybody can play. Um, but it, but it, 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 you know, was an issue because men thought it was an easier competition and it was an easier way to win a World Series of Poker bracelet. And so they would enter this event and some would wear a dress, but some wouldn't even bother with that. And they would take spots from women. Yeah, and I have to say, I had some hope that Americans were finally waking up to the situation, reality of how unfair it is to force biological women to compete against biological men. But then we had just this week NBC News publish an article with the headline, we should be celebrating Leah Thomas like we did Jackie Robinson. Mm -hmm. Anyone who cares about the advancement of sports and women's sports in particular should celebrate her win, this author wrote. And so uh, it it seems the left is only digging its heels in more. And, um, you know, I do think it's really important to point out that on this issue, it's not just conservatives who are speaking out. We have a lot of uh, groups that identify as radical feminists who Mm -hmm. are trying to protect the integrity of women's sports. Um, but, but, but again, <laughs> I, I feel like we're still so behind on this issue. The policies are clearly not in place to protect fairness, uh, for women and, and, and even girls, uh, you know, this gets into the high school and grade school levels as well. Um, but I, I guess, <laughs> Carol, I'll let you wrap this up, but personally, I, I really want to see more female athletes find the courage to speak up. And I say that knowing what they are risking. Um, You know, I have I have a daughter myself, I I would fear repercussions that she would face. But a bunch of them need to band together, perhaps and 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 come out forcefully. So it's not just one individual alone pointing this out. Because again, we know I know from talking to them personally, a lot of them recognize how unfair this is. Yeah, that picture of second, third, and fourth place winners standing together uh, was really powerful because that was a moment where you can tell that 
these girls know uh, what's been done and how deeply unfair this was to the fourth place winner. Um, and yeah, we can only hope that they find the bravery, that their parents find the bravery, and that these officials find the bravery. Because we're heading into this question being asked in every sport. It's not just going to be college swimming. It's going to be everything. Uh, because why wouldn't it be? Why why wouldn't people find an easier path to success uh, in having biological males compete with biological females. Yeah, well, sadly, we know this isn't the end of this story. Uh, All our listeners know we'll continue to cover it here on Problematic Women. But Carol, we want to move on to a topic that is more, even more personal to to you (laughs) than that. And that is your move from New York to Florida. Yeah. Um, So in December, we decided that we had to move our family from New York City, where we had planned to raise our kids. We had moved into our dream house in March of 2020. Um, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. My husband's a lifelong New Yorker. And we had a vision for how our life was going to go. And that was going to be raising our kids in Brooklyn and eventually retiring to Manhattan. And as things got progressively crazier in New York we finally couldn't have couldn't just couldn't deal with it anymore and um, made the decision to leave in December and by early January we were already living in South Florida and what's it been like living in Florida as as I like to call a better place <laughs> <laughs> oh it's amazing it's so amazing it's um it's so sane and normal in so many different ways that I hadn't even known that I was missing. Um, I wrote about some of it for the New York Post, but like we got here in January and the Omicron spike was in full effect uh, in New York. And it was also happening here on a, on a lesser level, but still happening. Um, and yet my kids school let us come in, let me come in and read a book to the class. They had a, a mm. book day where they invited parents in to read a book. And I was just thinking like, I don't know when that's going to happen in New York. I mean, right now, March, 2022, they don't have that in New York city public schools. I don't know about private, but in public schools, parents are not uh, welcome into the classroom yet. Um, there's no, my my son who was in first grade in New York is now in kindergarten in Florida because it's a different cutoff and they have circle time on a, it's called carp, you know, rug time or whatever. They haven't had that in New York since before March, 2020. Kids are not allowed to leave their seats. They're not allowed to intermingle with other kids in their class because they're supposed to maintain some distance, even today, today. Um, and so many other little things that are just, beautiful, wonderful sanity that my kids hadn't had through the length of the pandemic. And the pandemic just exposed so much craziness in New York City that my husband and I could not unsee. We thought, you know, like everybody else, we thought in the in 2020, like, oh, this will just pass and we'll get back to normal. And then we saw that normal wasn't even a goal. It wasn't even a consideration. Nobody was thinking, like, let's get these kids back to normal. Uh, most of the politicians were not focused on kids at all. There was no consideration for what the kids were going th- going through, whether it was not going to school or being intensely masked, masked in a way that adults simply were not. Um, kids in New York City public schools were wearing masks outdoors in school up until just a few weeks ago. So it's 
it was really hard to watch kids be such a last priority and we couldn't do that to our kids anymore. We had to get them to somewhere normal and somewhere sane. Yeah. And do you have a lot of contact with your friends or family up in New York? What did they say? And do they come yeah. to visit you in Florida a lot? <laughs> um, so we've only been here a few months. Uh, but yes, we've had friends and family come to visit. They, uh, the, the ones who can't leave for various reasons, maybe family obligations or uh, business reasons, you know, it, it's very hard. It's very hard for them to uh, watch my kids have a completely normal life in Florida the way that they would have in 2019 when their kids are still, you know, a two-year-old still has to mask in daycare in New York City, um, it, which is insane because no country masked two-year-olds except us. And yet New York is not only still masking them, they're the only ones still masked. Two, three, and four-year-olds in New York are the only ones still required to be masked in daycare and school settings. Um, so it just is so much that makes no sense and that has never made sense. And what's crushing to, you know, I used to jokingly call myself a New York supremacist. I, I, you know, I thought New York was the best. I thought New Yorkers were the best. I was so proud to be from New York. I loved being from Brooklyn. Um, and it's sad to watch them not question anything and not wonder why are we the only ones masking two-year-olds? Why is no other country doing this? Why are we still doing this? And it's really hard to watch New Yorkers just roll over and take it. Yeah, Carol, I can tell you as the mom of a two-year-old, I <laughs> uh, feel your anger. I feel your pain. I feel your frustration. I have made it this entire pandemic pretty much without putting a mask on her face because it, it just feels wrong quite frankly yeah. it feels like child abuse when she mm -hmm. can has no um way to understand what's actually happening and why she needs to be wearing this mask so i i appreciate all your very vocal pushback on this and we actually wanted to get into these mass mandates um, later in the show, but I'm just going to bring it up now. Before I do that, I think it's important to point out to readers, you publish, I believe, in Fox News, an article um, digging into, you know, your decision to move to Florida. And mm -hmm. it wasn't just the COVID policies, from my understanding. Right. Um, it, it, it was the lack of pushback from parents, yeah. the inability to stand up. And, and I think back to the conversation we just had about women's sports, where uh, people are are, live in fear they're too scared to push exactly. back against authorities and it appears like the same thing happened in in this case and it's still happening yeah yeah absolutely so you know one of the things that i always say is that it wasn't the politicians it was the people it was new yorkers who disappointed me i look i, I didn't wake up one day and realize that i live in a deep blue city i always knew that right so i it, it wasn't like bill de blasio you know had crushed my like spirit um i, I knew who he was from the day he took office so or, or governor cuomo for that matter um or Governor Hochul today, uh, I was really disappointed by my fellow New Yorkers. There was a moment where public schools were closed, but private schools were open. And I was like, well, this is it. This is the moment where my New Yorkers rise up. There's no way they're going to stand for this. Private schools are open, but public schools are not. And then nobody said anything. Nobody did anything. Um, the richer New Yorkers got tutors or for their kids or pods, or they moved to their like, you know, 
summer house and sent their kids to public school there or they pulled them and sent them to private schools which were open um, and they just left their neighbors behind and to me that was like so deeply unacceptable I I couldn't believe that that's that's where my New Yorkers went I, I really I couldn't I there was so much that I was willing to accept but the fact that they actually didn't care at all what happened to their neighbors kids was crazy to me um, so yeah it wasn't just COVID because look theoretically COVID will end someday, right? And uh, you you don't want to make big decisions, big life decisions for your family based on temporary temporary situations. But the leadership wasn't the issue. Uh, so, you know, I moved to South Florida. I kind of am vague about where I am. But um, in South Florida, a lot of the localities are Democrats. Uh, a lot of them are Democratic run. And so there was a, a moment where Governor DeSantis, who I, I see as like the great hero of this moment, especially for children, especially where COVID is involved, um, had mandated that kids would not have to wear masks in schools. And a lot of these um, localities still had masking in schools. So people would say to me, you know, you're moving to South Florida and a lot of these counties in South Florida are still masking children. And I'd say, yes, yes, they were in in the fall of this year. Um, But I saw I saw online and I saw in reality how many parents were fighting back. And I compared that with who was fighting back in New York. And it was not even in the same universe. In Florida, there were these gigantic groups of parents Democrats and Republicans pushing to unmask kids that simply did not exist in New York City. It did not. There was a few parents. It was small groups. There was small protests. Nothing like I saw on the scale in Florida. And those parents won. They got the kids unmasked, you know, in November of this year, which is months before New York did it. Yeah. And to catch our listeners up. Uh, about the mask mandates. So earlier this month, New York City actually finally lifted its mask mandates for adults, uh, but said mask mandates will continue to be worn by children under five in public schools and a lot of daycares and so forth. Uh, Their justification for this was that they're not yet eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine uh, because of supposed high hospitalization rates among young kids, which I have not seen any evidence to to speak to that. Um, So, you know, I guess I I have to ask, did you make the right move in moving to Florida? Um, And also, (laughs) I I saw you tweeted um, a a really interesting graphic uh, this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, pointing out the uh, death toll c- compared to Florida and California. I mean, do we? Is it clear by now that these COVID policies, mass mandates, didn't have much of any effect on hospitalization and death rates? Yeah, I mean I, that graphic was excess deaths. Um, so it wasn't just COVID; it was um, you know all excess deaths during that time. Because the question is, what gets marked as COVID uh, as a COVID death, and what you know with COVID or from COVID, etc. So excess deaths is a really good, clear way to look at what's happening in different states and California during this period had higher uh, excess deaths than Florida did, and so. I, to me, masking 
was entirely pointless, completely, completely pointless. In fact, I, I think we're going to get to a point where we're going to admit that the push to mask probably harmed people. And I don't just mean um, like educationally harmed children, which I think we're already getting to that point. But I think we're going to get to where people had a false sense of security that this little uh, cotton thing on their face was going to protect them from a virus, which was never going to happen. And they probably took more chances because of that. Um, during the Omicron spike, I saw people on social media say things like, uh, you know, I'm positive. And then two days later, they'd be in a supermarket, but they'd be like, I'm masked. It's okay. And it's like, it's not okay. It's it, nothing about that is okay. Your mask does nothing. And nobody, if, if we don't say that, you know, I, I know, I think it still isn't like a, a mainstream thing to say that your mask was pointless. It did nothing. Um, we're getting there, but we're not quite there. And if we can't get to that point, I think we're going to continue to return to this pointless measure every time that there's a spike in any blue area. And one thing to remember about Florida, especially in South Florida where you are, is the population is so much older. Yep. Than California, and I'm sure you've noticed moving to South Florida. We joke, all you see is the white knuckles and the white hair driving down, <laughs> down the road. And and you know the the way that DeSantis was able to recognize this early in the pandemic and yeah. protect the elderly, but also know that life has to go on for those who aren't at high risk, and and allow yeah. the schools to open. And and the other thing I want to talk about New York and and masking children is. If, if this has this effect on, you know, these rough and tough New Yorkers who are supposed to hate mm -hmm. authority, what do you think is going to happen to these children who just had to listen to authority and, and put the mask on? How is that going to affect the way they see government, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road? Yeah. I mean, my kids have become, I don't want to say radicalized, <laughs> but certainly they understand that government has an outsized effect on their lives and it caused their family to move to another state because of the control factor and because the government tried to control things that were outside of their purview and should have never been controlled by them. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm making a little libertarians during this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I do. I think that the kids... You know, there's so many people who are like, oh, my kids love to mask. They just love masking. They can't get enough of the masking. And it's like, wow, my kids hate masking. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I, I think kids take the cue from their parents. And my kid, my kids saw that I thought masking was ridiculous and didn't work. Um, and I find it super uncomfortable and I hate doing it. Uh, and they, too, realize that, you know, they could they're allowed to feel that way. Also, they don't have to be like, I love this mask so much. Um, and I think kids really want to please their parents. They really want to please the adults in their lives. And this was a crazy time of compliance and uh, forcing kids to do something that was completely unnecessary and scary that people thought that kids really wanted this. That's so gross. Well, Carol, thank you so much for, for standing up. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we just want to get a little bit into your background. We are back with Carol Markowitz. Uh, so, Carol, you were also born in the Soviet Union. You grew up in New York, as we've discussed, but surrounded by many Eastern Europeans. You recently published a, a column titled Think Twice Before You Punish a Russian Over Putin's Horrible War. 
This article kind of brought me back to the aftermath of 9-11, where we heard from many Muslims in America who had nothing to do with the attacks, that they uh, felt a certain amount of harassment, backlash, and hate. Um, You actually shared the story of a Russian restaurant owner who received threatening phone calls and wrote, quote, it's the culture of do something, even if the something is stupid or wrong, that causes the cancellation of Russian artists and ultimately the threatening phone calls to restaurants. We don't always need to act to virtue signal how deeply we care and to display our commitment to canceling the bad people. So the the concept of the do something culture really resonated with me. And in that regard, I wanted to ask how how do we balance between vocalizing uh, where we stand on certain issues in a cause without becoming part of this sometimes dangerous do something culture? Yeah, it's tough um, because, look, you know, post 9-11, I... absolutely stopped buying like French goods when they were like difficult (laughs) to us. The freedom Um, fries, right? Right, right. I didn't call them freedom fries, but I I definitely went through a time where I wasn't drinking, you know, champagne, Um, which, you know, (laughs) real sacrifice. What a a mistake. (laughs) I've been drinking champagne that whole time. Um, But I was young. I was foolish. I uh, believed very deeply that we needed to go to a war with Iraq and I thought that the French were, you know, stopping us from doing this thing that I thought was morally right. Um, and look, you need to grow up and, and realize that that's just every country has its own, you know, priorities and uh, ideas, etc. And we, we you just can't live like that. So well, what's interesting about this moment is so I, you know, I, I tried to boycott France. I didn't accidentally boycott like Sweden. You know, I it it was um, the moment right now is where Russian has been shorthand for people from all of the Soviet republics for so long. My community in Brooklyn is called the Russian community, but it's mostly non-Russians. Almost nobody's from Russia. From Russia, actually, I was. I was born in Russia, but that was extremely rare. Um, most people were actually from Ukraine or from Belarus or Moldova or any of the other republics. And so it's funny, not funny, that it's actually people from Ukraine being targeted in this anti-Russia hate moment, um, despite them being, again, Ukrainian, <laughs> and despite <laughs> the fact that these people want to protect Ukraine somehow. So, for example, um, in the article, my favorite Russian restaurant in Brooklyn, and then there's one in Hollandale, Florida, is called Tatiana. And so if you ask me, like, what's your favorite Russian restaurant? That's my favorite Russian restaurant. Uh, but... Tatiana herself, the owner, is from Ukraine, and she came from the Ukraine in the late 70s. So she's being targeted and punished, and she's from Ukraine. It's like the just absolutely bonkers. Um, and then so many Russian artists and musicians and uh, actors, etc., are are being maligned because they're not speaking out as forcefully as people would like against Putin. And some of them are speaking out. They just maybe aren't as strongly as we expect people to speak out. We're used to hearing from free Americans uh, 
who say what they think and and aren't afraid of you know being arrested for it and these are not free people these are not free people who come from a free country they come from a very uh closed off country where saying the wrong thing can land you in prison and has for generations so we can't expect them to behave the way free people would they're not free people and to bring this all full circle, how does this affect you uh, as someone who was born in the Soviet Union, understands how terrible that you know, communist government was, and then you see overreaching policies in New York so much that you moved your family you know, t- thousands of miles south, and yeah. then on the, same, on the other side, you're getting hatred for just you know where you're born like right. how did how how do you kind of balance that and and keep such a good attitude it's it's interesting because i've actually in the last since the trump since the beginning of the trump administration um i got so much hate for being from russia because it you know a conservative from russia was immediately suspect to the left because they were little um, resistors and they were resisting by telling me to go back to Russia on Twitter. Um, so I got a lot of that in the last few years in a way that I hadn't since like the 1980s where like little kids called me commie in school. And so um, based on Rocky, they didn't. Like yes. You. Rocky was very hard for me. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's been happening a lot. Uh, and it's, you know, happening from the left because they woke up one day and realized that uh, Russia is not our friend, which was interesting because I had been saying that for decades and the left didn't think so. They thought that Russia was fine and um, they were heading in a good direction. And who could forget, you know, just all the different ways that the Obama administration or Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State they tried to make friends with Russia. And throughout that whole period, I was like, no, no, these are not our friends. These are not our friends. They're... Um, they don't have to be our enemy, but they're not going to be our allies. And the faster we realize that, the better. Um, but it's so it, it's been an interesting moment to watch the left wake up to Mitt Romney being right, uh, that Russia is a, a threat to us and that we should be concerned about a, a powerful Russia. And, you know, you, you say like how about, about moving and how that relates, but and and on a much smaller scale, obviously, uh, and with a lot more privilege. But I, I come from a culture of people who knew when it was time to go. Um, mm. And it, so many different ways. Um, in World War Two, my grandmother and her family were in Belarus. And uh, they were from a town called Gomel, which most of the Jews were killed. Uh, and they escaped. They had They had left just in time. Um, and they ran east and they survived. And that's why I get to be here because they they left just in time. And again, I don't want to make it seem like moving to palm trees on the beach in Florida is similar <laughs> to like making a run for like the, the Caucasus Mountains or whatever and during World War II. But uh, there absolutely is this thread in my family of save your family, go when you need to go and don't wait. Just get out. Mm. Wow. Well, that just gave me chills to hear and think about. (laughs) Carol, there's so much more we could uh, spend to talk to you about, but uh, I want to respect your time and let you go. I know everybody listening can follow you on Twitter. You have a very easy Twitter handle to remember. It's just at Carol with a K. Uh, But where else can everyone follow your work? 
I'm in the New York Post most Mondays. Um, I was on book leave, but now I'm back and back in the New York Post on Mondays. I write on the Fox News website and I'm in the Spectator and the Washington Examiner as well. Well, you're busy. <laughs> Sounds like we might have another opportunity to interview you when it comes time to promote your new book. So that would be fingers great. crossed we'll get you back on. That'd be great. Terrific. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Carol, so much for joining. Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you about the most popular resource on the Heritage Foundation website, the Guide to the Constitution. More than 100 scholars have contributed to create a unique line-by-line analysis of our Constitution. The guide is intended to provide a brief and accurate explanation of each clause of the Constitution as envisioned by the framers and as applied in contemporary law. There has never been a more important time to have an understanding of our founding document. So if you want to learn more about the Constitution, go ahead and visit heritage.org constitution or simply search for Heritage Guide to the Constitution. Welcome back. It is now that time of the week, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Rekha Georgi. This is that Virginia Tech female swimmer who publicly issued a statement uh, standing up for fairness in women's sports. We know it took a lot of courage for her to uh, publicly release a statement. Uh, Very few, if any, female athletes uh, in today's cancel culture are willing to do that. Uh, So she really deserves a lot of credit for this display of courage uh, that we saw her issue after this whole Leah Thomas situation played out. And how heartbreaking. She's an Olympian. She's been doing this for five years to make the decision to stay at college for the fifth year to swim and to lose your spot to a biological man that, I mean, there's really nothing that a woman could do to, to become like this. It, it just... Uh, I really feel for her. I I wish her a long career in swimming and, yeah, just really commend her. I I can't imagine the backlash that she's getting from from people on campus. I agree. It's a very sad way to end her college swimming career. Uh, Again, as you mentioned, she was a 2016 Rio Olympian. And to not be able to compete in the NCAA finals because there was a biological male ahead of her, um, taking one of those spots, it's it's an injustice that I think as a society we need to act quickly to correct. Yes. Couldn't say it better, Kelsey. Be uncancelable. Be <laughs> uncancelable. Is that a word? Well, we'll we're going to go with it. It is now. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next week for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share with your friends. Conservatives in the podcast world could really use your support. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a good week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.